the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Ask the Lawyer with Mike Connors. Got questions concerning elder or estate law? Attorney Mike Connors has the answer. He's been recognized as one of New York's top lawyers by New York Magazine and brings over 30 years' experience to the table. Call him now at 866-970-9622. That's 866-970-9622. And Ask the Lawyer. Here's Mike Connors. We are gathered here on hallowed ground. Horses raised, heads bowed down. We're gathered here on hallowed ground to sing this old way. Okay, well, welcome to Ask the Lawyer with me, Mike Connors, accompanied by my wife, Beth. Hello, everybody. Okay, for those who don't, don't know about this show, it's in two parts. The first part of the show, we talk about state planning and elder law and answer emails. The idea behind estate planning is to pass assets from one generation to the next, paying the least amount in taxes we need to pay legally, avoiding going through court, that's avoiding probate, and as far as elder law is concerned, trying to save assets from nursing home bills. Now, usually we get emails, and almost every email we get is from the New York City area, but we happen to get one email from Poland, which is kind of interesting to me. So, Beth, it's going to take a while to get through it, but what does it say? It's a wonderful thing. To Mr. Mike Connor from Gdansk, Poland, July 13th, 2018. Sir, I am very pleased to inform you that in Poland, in the city called Gdansk, a Marguerite, a prayer for priests have been completed. Is not a prayer for just any priest, but for the one you have the chance to meet and know. A very special priest from Poland means Father Paul Bilecki. I am as very well pleased to announce that on the 23rd of September, the Father Pio Day, all ladies that are praying for Father Paul will promise to God to pray for him in one cho- on one chosen day of the week for the rest of their lives or as long as they can. Please do accept my kind request to let Father Paul to have this good news as well from you in order to join us with his thoughts at this very special day in the ceremony that will take place in St. Jacob's Church in Gdansk in Poland on 23rd of September, 2018. Due to the distance that remains between Poland and the USA, the time of the day is not important. The intention and hearts of so many ladies involved in the prayer is saying that every minute of that day shall remember Father Paul. I would like as well to thank you for your great interviews with Father Paul. I am speechless as I have had the honor and pleasure to meet Father Paul in Lebanon. I am truly happy that once Father Paul remains in USA, he could have in your program the time for voices that shout for help. With my kindest regards, Alexandra Kausen. Okay, and I, you know, I always wondered where on Facebook we had some likes from Poland, so I guess that's where it's from. Whatever. You know, I mean, what a you know. wonderful, wonderful letter. I'm going to mark it on the calendar because I'm going to say prayers that day, too. Okay, now on November 15th, there is going to be a fundraiser for Father Paul in Brooklyn at the Bay Ridge Manor, which is on 76th Street and 5th Avenue. 
We'll have more information on that later. But, you know, mark the date if you want. Father Paul is going to be in Brooklyn on November 15th, God willing. We'll have a fundraiser for him and his mission to help Christians, you know, in, in the Middle East. If if he can, we're going to have some of the um, refugees, his Christian refugees that have been able to come to the United States, and you'll be able to meet with them and talk to them. Yeah, hopefully we'll we'll see what happens, but it is November 15th, which is not as far away no. as it seems. You know, like right now you say November, that's forever, but it's really only four months away, and four months can go pretty quickly. Now tonight we're going to have, we're going to be talking about John Ford, who's one of my favorite directors, and I shouldn't say one of my favorite directors, my favorite director. And we have two people that, uh, different perspectives of John Ford, but the same time period. We're going to have Claude Jarman Jr. on, who played Trooper York in Rio Grande, which, by the way, if you're listening to the Saturday Night Broadcast, Rio Grande is going to be played on the Western Channel tonight at 8 o'clock. And in Rio Grande, Claude Jarman Jr., stars in the John Ford movie. He's John Wayne's son, Maureen O'Hara's son in that movie. So, you know, it, it, that's one of my favorites. And we're also talking to uh, a gentleman about the um, making of They Were Expendable. Lou Sabini. Lou Sabini. And he worked with a photographer who was on the set. And they have some great pictures there of... John Ford, John Wayne, Robert Montgomery, Ward Bond. And we're going to be talking about that book. But right now, we're going to take a short break. When we come back, we'll get to the questions on the line. And you're listening to Ask the Lawyer with me, Mike Connors. Hello, this is Father Frank Pavone of Priests for Life. Adult stem cell research is nothing new. It has been going on for decades and, in fact, has proven helpful in treating various diseases. In the process of this research, nobody has to be killed in order to obtain the stem cells. Embryonic stem cell research, on the other hand, only began in 1998 and does involve killing a new human life in order to obtain the cells. The number of diseases that have been successfully treated with embryonic stem cells is zero. They have shown no medical benefit. And even if they did, such activity is immoral. The end does not justify the means. Adult stem cells have treated various forms of leukemia, sickle cell disease, anemia, and carcinoma. Embryonic stem cells have succeeded in nothing. This is Father Frank Pavone, National Director of Priests for Life. How can I protect my family if something happens to me? What if I need to go to a nursing home? What will happen to our savings, our home? What's the best way to give my home to my kids? Who will help us take care of Grandpa? These and many other questions can be answered with a phone call to Connors & Sullivan Attorneys at Law, PLLC, 718-238-6500. Mike Connors, one of New York Magazine's top lawyers, has over 30 years of estate planning and elder law experience. Mike and his team of professionals will help you protect your assets from probate, taxes, and nursing home costs so you can have peace of mind knowing you and your family will be taken care of and protected. I'm Mike Connors, founder of Connors & Sullivan. People don't plan to fail, they fail to plan. The time to plan is now. I'm Beth Connors. Call today for a free initial consultation with one of our experienced lawyers. Connors and Sullivan in Brooklyn, Queens, Manhattan, and Staten Island. Call 718-238-6500, 718-238-6500, or connorsandsullivan.com. Welcome back to Ask the Lawyer with Mike Connors. Got a question for Mike? Call him at 866-970-9622. That's 866-970-9622. All right, well, welcome back to Ask the Lawyer. We have uh, Tori on the line, wants to contest a will. Yes, Tori. Hi, my, uh, yes, I am Tori. Um, I just wanted to know, um, my mom passed away recently, and I just recently found out that she left me out of the will. So I wanted to know what grounds did I have in order to contest it. Okay, well, there are a couple of different grounds that you can have to contest the will. One, it may be a technical reason, but if the will was not properly signed, in other words, if it was not witnessed by two people and you know their signatures were affixed to the will and the person who made the will clearly stated, this is my will, I want you to witness my will. So one, if it's not properly signed, which occasionally today is a grounds when people start printing up wills off uh, 
LegalZoom.com or whatever that may not be properly witnessed or signed. The other one, if the person is not of sound mind, they're incompetent, that's very hard because almost everybody's presumed to be of sound mind, but if the person is not mentally alert, they had a stroke, they're not thinking clearly, it could be grounds not of sound mind. The other thing is undue influence. An undue influence would mean that somebody was getting into your mother's mind and somehow Mm -hmm. put their will into your mother's mind where, you know, she said, well, don't, you know, don't leave anything to Tori. She's no good. Things like that. Very hard to prove. But at the same time, in, in New York, a lot of times, if you do have some kind of case or whatever, if you do file objections, and a lot of, and a lot of times it will get settled, you know, if there are any grounds at all. So I, I would say see a lawyer and then take it from there. But not properly signed would be one grounds, undue influence by somebody, uh, and lack of testamentary capacity. A person is not mentally alert to sign a will. And there might be other things. Of course, it could be a forgery. But if the obviously if it's a forgery, then the person didn't properly sign the will. Is that it? Okay. All right. Yep. That's all. Thank you so much. Okay. All right. Now, sometimes you know we've been spending so much time on interviews, or whatever. Some people forget that we do have a law firm that practices estate planning and elder law. So if you have any questions about that, you know we have offices all around uh, the city. Give us a call at seven one eight two three eight sixty five hundred seven one eight two three eight sixty five hundred. Beth, you have another email question? I do. Um, it says, hi, the attorney that did estate planning for me was recently disbarred. Does this render the documents he prepared for me ineffective? Thanks, Marvin. Well, the question is no. And I did, this was a, a case that I had, I don't know, maybe 20, 25 years ago. And exact same pattern we're talking about. It was before uh, surrogate bloom. And the other side was trying to make a point that, uh, you know, because the documents were prepared by a disbarred lawyer, the lawyer who was disbarred after he prepared the documents, that they weren't good. And he says, okay, I go to a lawyer to do my will. I just go to the lawyer. I know him. He does my will. He gets disbarred. My will's not any good. You know, so, I mean, there was, and and, and sad to say, you know, I didn't appreciate him maybe as for, for his full common sense back then. But there was a lot more common sense back then than there is now. Um, but no, just because the lawyer gets disbarred, I, I, th- that's not a reason to make the will invalid. Now, at the same time, if you have a highly contestable will, a will, let's say, where one of the children is knocked out of the will or, or something else, you may want to think about uh, redoing it because maybe if the guy was a disbarred lawyer or a woman was a disbarred lawyer, maybe the will was not properly signed and maybe you need to, to tighten things up. But just because your lawyer was disbarred is no reason to do your redo your will at a time, especially like if you have a will that leaves everything to the two kids equally. I wouldn't even worry about it. I wouldn't even think about it. But at the same time, if, if it's something contestable, something controversial, I might think about redoing it. And of course, a lot depends on how many years ago that will was done. The older a will is, in, in effect, according to the courts, it's more valid because more years ago, more years pass by, you're not likely to be mentally incompetent years ago. I mean, people who are mentally incompetent ordinarily don't live a long time. So if you did your will a few years back, the the longer your will is, the better. There's less chance of undue influence if you did a will years ago because you could have always changed it. You know, and, and again, assuming the will was properly signed, the same, same result. So uh, it, it's always a good idea to take a look at your will. Some people say every five years. I don't think that's really necessary, but I would say probably every 10 years or so you may want to take a look at your will. And the one thing is we want to see if the, the, the will, you know, sometimes procedures change slightly, even if the, the, the law doesn't, because law and wills really hasn't changed dramatically in, you know, 150 years since the middle of the 1800s. The law of, the wills, law of wills has been pretty settled. You know, in some states you can write a will in your own handwriting and it would be valid. In other states like New York, it can't. There are a couple of exceptions, a soldier in combat, things like that, a mariner at sea. I haven't seen too many mariner at sea cases in the last uh, 30, 40 years. But occasionally you do see somebody who's, let's say, in Canada, and in Canada you can write your will in your own handwriting, and it's valid. So if you're a New York resident, you go to Canada, you're on vacation, you write a will in your own handwriting, it's still valid in New York. So sometimes that's one of the things you've got to look at all the facts. And, of course, in Louisiana, if you write a will entirely in your own handwriting and it's 
Even if it's not witnessed, it's a valid will. So those are some of the things. Sometimes you can be thrown from a loop, and you really have to talk and think about things. But ordinarily, a will has to be signed by two, has to be witnessed by two people, signed by the person who's making the will, witnessed by two people, and the person who makes the will has to declare that the will is that it is a will that he's signing. That everybody knows that there's a meeting of minds that they're signing a will, and that the two witnesses are being asked to sign the will. It's not just a piece of paper you throw in front of you, you sign it, you fill out the form. And it's okay. It's a little bit more than that. Okay, well, we're going to take a short break, and and then we're going to be going to our nostalgia on John Ford. I think I just found myself believing that I didn't need God. I just had everything under control, and church was actually a, a burden to me. I might have gone to church, you know, at Christmas time, gradually quit going. No, I didn't take my faith seriously, which, which probably means I, I never really got it to begin with. You can have a beautiful car, a big fancy home. If you don't have Christ in your life, there's an emptiness that's there. We are enslaved to power or to greed or to wealth or to lust, especially as a man. But there's a true freedom to not be enslaved, but to attach ourselves to God and to be free. Thank God I'm home. Now that I'm back in the Catholic Church, I'm a new person. I love it. There's peace in our home that we didn't have before. You're coming home to a Catholic family where people today just embrace you. If you've been away from the Catholic Church for whatever reason, we invite you to take another look. Visit catholicscomehome.org today. If you're a homeowner age 62 or older and are finding it hard to pay off debt, or how about enjoying your retirement years with less stress? A government-insured reverse mortgage may be the answer or might be the perfect solution for you and your family. Hi, this is Frank Melia, a certified mortgage planner. I've been a mortgage specialist for over 20 years, and I've helped countless homeowners all over the tri-state area tap into a little or a lot of their home equity so they can use it right now. This past October, the federal government made changes to the reverse mortgage loan program. Give me a call now so our office can show you how these changes affect how much money you receive and how the annual mortgage insurance costs have decreased. My job is to help you find the best solutions for your retirement goals. I do this by educating homeowners with straightforward information and answers. It's free to call and speak with me, Frank Melia, to determine if this FHA program might be able to help you and your loved ones now. Call and speak with me right now. I'll answer your questions and help you decide if a reverse mortgage is right for you and your family. Make the call now, 888-943-2646, or try me on the internet at www.quanticbank.com backslash F Melia. Once again, call 888-943-2646 and you could be on your way to a stress-free retirement. Frank Melia, NMLS number 62591. All loans provided by Quantic Bank. NMLS number 403503. Welcome back to Ask the Lawyer with Mike Connors. Welcome to the Connors Corner segment of Ask the Lawyer. Our next guest is, is Lou Sabini and we were talking about a movie called They Were Expendable. Luke, can you take it from there? How did, how did you, you discovered some pictures from that set? Yes. Uh, well, I wrote a book. It was published uh, in 2015 called Behind the Scenes of They Were Expendable, a pictorial history. And back in 2012, a friend of mine, Dan Burke, who works for the Stanford Historical Society here in Stanford, Connecticut, he sent me via email two photographs. And one was a photograph of John Ford, director John Ford, lying on the ground. And he was talking to John Wayne, Robert Montgomery, and Jack Holt. And there was another photograph of this young sailor sitting in a military vehicle with actor Robert Montgomery. And Dan had asked me in the email, Lou, can you identify these photographs? And I said, certainly. And I said, these must be production stills from the film They Were Expendable. And he said, well, they're not. They're actually photographs that this fellow Nick Scuddy, who lives in Stanford, Connecticut, had taken. And to my surprise, I found that Nick was still alive and well. He was, he was about, uh, I guess he was about 90 years old at the time, or 89 years old. And I found out he still lived here in Stanford, Connecticut. And better still, he was a good friend of my mother's. So I contacted Nick, thinking that perhaps I could maybe write an article about his day on the set of They Were Expendable. And when I got there and uh, spoke with him, I asked him, I said, well, so Nick, uh, tell me about your day on the set of They Were Expendable. And he said, well, Lou, 
I was there for the whole 30-day shoot. Uh, Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer and director John Ford and his crew were down there for 30 days doing location shooting in Miami, Florida. And I asked him, I said, so you only took two photographs? And uh, Nick responded and said, no, Lou. And he came back, he left the room, and he came back with a shoebox with over 150 photographs. And I've got to say, this is the first time I think anybody has written a book that chronicles the filming of a classic motion picture made over 70 years ago. What are in those photographs? Well, um, I asked Nick at the time, I said, I said, so where were you situated? And he said, Lou, right behind Mr. Ford. So every day that they were shooting, he was shooting behind John Ford. And I asked him, well, did you get to talk to Ford? Yes. Did you speak to John Wayne? Absolutely. Robert Montgomery? Yes. And so he was there the whole day when they were shooting it. And he's, the, the book is filled with stories about Nick's experiences during the filming of They Were Expendable. Now, why did Ford allow somebody to take photographs? You know, I don't know. Uh, I guess there there were, I think Nick was one of the only people from the Navy who was allowed on the set to take these photographs. And as long as he kept quiet and stayed out of everybody's way, it was okay with John Ford. And that's what happened. And during lunchtime, for instance, uh, the first day, Nick was walking with a friend of his, and they saw John Wayne uh, sitting under a big umbrella with Ward Bond, and they were having their lunch. And Nick walked up to John Wayne. He had his camera, and he said, excuse me, Mr. Wayne, may I take a photograph of you? And he said, uh, sure. And Ward Bond said, nah, kid, get out of here. We, we don't want you to leave. And, and John Wayne said, oh, Ward, wait a minute. Sure, son, go ahead, take the photograph. And the photos are rather telling because John Wayne turned his chair around and posed for the picture. Ward Bond hit his face, <laughs> and uh, it, it's, it's rather telling. But the following day, Nick was walking with his buddy again, and, and Ward Bond was walking. He, was, he, was, um, he, had, he had broken his foot. He was in a car accident prior to the filming of the movie, and he was on crutches, and he wasn't wearing a shirt. And he yelled to Nick, he saw Nick, and he said, uh, hey, hey, son, you want to take my picture now? And I guess John Wayne had admonished him for some reason for, you know, for being so rude. And so Nick got a great picture of him with Ward Bond the following day. But, I mean, you see photographs of them clowning around uh, Robert Montgomery and John Wayne and a lot of the other actors in the film, like uh, Jack Pennock and um, uh, Jack Holt and, I mean, so many others. It's, it's, it's just so great to, to see all this and it really comes to life when you when you uh look at the book see all the pictures now i think everybody out there obviously knows who john wayne was but mm-hmm. robert montgomery i think he's a little forgotten right now though he, he shouldn't be but he is yeah well i mean robert montgomery was a huge star at metro goldwyn mayor in the 1930s in the early 30s he, he was he usually played boy next door uh parts in films rich playboys uh, in, in many, many movies, most notably in Noel Coward's Private Lives. He was in The Divorcee with Norma Shearer. She won an Academy Award for that in 1930. But he really wanted to uh, prove his mettle as an actor, and he pleaded for, for better roles. And in 1936, he and his wife were in New York City, and they went to see a play called Night Must Fall. It was uh, based on the Emlyn Williams play, uh, it was actually the Yemen Williams play, and Williams, who's a British playwright and actor, um, was starring in the play. And Montgomery was so impressed with this, he pleaded with Louis B. Mayer to buy the rights for the film. It's about a serial killer, which is so unlike anything MGM ever made. But Montgomery ended off making it. But when, when Mayer had seen the final product, he was just totally shocked. He said, this is not the type of movie MGM makes. And Montgomery was nominated for the Best Actor Oscar, but MGM rallied to get Spencer Tracy voted in, and Tracy won the Oscar that year for Captain's Courageous. But Montgomery's career, uh, he went into the Navy uh, when World War II broke out, and he was a commander on a ship, and They Were Expendable was his first movie after he left the Navy. As a matter of fact, he was still in the Navy at the time. 
And what happened during the end when they were when they were wrapping the movie up at the end of the the shoot of They Were Expendable back in Hollywood, John Ford fell and broke his leg, and he needed somebody to finish the picture. So he asked Robert Montgomery, "Can you finish directing the movie?" And Montgomery uh, accepted the the position as director, and he enjoyed it so much, he became a director, and he directed one film for MGM the following year called Lady in the Lake from 1946, which is a film noir. It's pretty good. But then he went over to Universal and made a superb film noir called Ride the Pink Horse in 1947. He not only directed these films, but he starred in them as well. And, you know, he did a lot of TV work. I mean, most people remember Robert Montgomery today as the father of Elizabeth Montgomery, who was a star of the TV series Bewitched in the 1960s and early 70s. Well, he also directed James Cagney in uh, The Gallant Hours. Yes, The Gallant Hours in 1960. That's correct. Yeah, well, Cagney and uh, Robert Montgomery were very good friends. I mean, ex- extremely close. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, so... Uh, what kind of other pictures are there that, you, you, know, you know, obviously somebody should pick up the book to take oh, a look yeah, at the pictures. Absolutely. Yeah, it, you, could, you could get it on Amazon. Uh, the publisher is McFarland. What other pictures are there? Well, there's photographs of scenes that were cut from the movie, scenes that they shot, and they cut them prior to release. And uh, it's it's kind of funny because uh, John Ford spoke about um, one of the uh, scenes. There's a Catholic priest, and he said the priest was played by Wallace Ford. Well, because Nick was there and took photographs of that scene, it wasn't played by Wallace Ford. Uh, it was it was played by uh, Pedro de Cordoba, and you know there's there's uh, loads of uh, dignitaries, naval bigwigs who came to visit the set. As a matter of fact, Commander Richard Barthelmus even visited the set, and we have pictures of that in the book. Richard Barthelmus was a silent film star, and he started with D.W. Griffith way back in the teens. And he became a gigantic star after leaving Griffith, starting with his uh, 1921 classic, Tolerable David. And later he w- went to work, well, I mean, he, uh, he was working at First National, and Warner Brothers absorbed First National. And uh, when they did that, they got Barthelmus, and Barthelmus made some great movies in the 1930s until he retired in 1935. But he had to come back in 1939 when he was when he was uh, in Only Angels Have Wings with Cary Grant, Gene Arthur, and Rita Hayworth. He's in the spoilers too with John Wayne and Marlena Dietrich and Randall yeah, Scott. As a matter of fact, I think that was his. I think that was his last film, if I'm not mistaken. He retired after the spoilers. I'm surprised we remember that one. That one's not shown that often. <laughs> no, but it's shown enough, and I have a decent memory for some of that stuff. Yeah. Uh, what does the reader or the viewer, I guess, since they're pictures, what, what does the viewer take away from this book? Well, I mean, the, the book mainly has, uh, it, it's, it's mainly a picture book, but I talk about the filming of the movie, the, the uh, making of, of They Were Expendable. And then after that, I, we, we go into a, uh, uh, you know, the whole production. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a big chapter. And then I have an interview with Nick Scuddy himself. I ask him a lot of questions, what happened on the set. And then chapter three are the photographs. You see all 153 photographs of it. And after that, uh, I talk about the real heroes, the real people the movie They Were Expendable was based on, like Rear Admiral John D. Bulkley and uh, Commander Robert Kelly, and then after that, uh, we talk about the cast. Uh, I give brief biographies of Robert Montgomery and John Wayne and Donna Reed and Ward Bond, etc. I have uh, a few things to tell you about it, uh, to add to They Were Expendable. Uh, in 2016, I was invited to Cinecon in Hollywood, uh, California, which is a big film festival. They hold it every year at Grumman's Egyptian Theater. And they had invited John Wayne's, two of John Wayne's kids, to, uh, to be present there. I was, I was invited to introduce. They were expendable, 35-millimeter print. And uh, Aissa and Ethan Wayne were invited. They couldn't make it uh, because it was over Labor Day weekend. And Ethan had told me, he said, you know, Lou, it, it, it's such a rough drive over that holiday weekend from Newport Beach 
but John Ford's grandson, Dan Ford, uh, showed up, and I got to meet him. He wrote a very good biography about his grandfather, and Dan was himself a war veteran from the Vietnam War, and Dan also was part of the production team on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson, so I got to hang out with him for the day, and lo and behold, two young gentlemen, young gentlemen, they were in their, in their 50s, I guess, they came up to me and they asked if I would autograph their copies of their book, and it turned out they were Donna Reed's sons, uh, uh, Tony and Tim Owen, who showed up for the screening. So, and, and, you know, it was just so thrilling meeting them. And then um, when I got back home a few months later, I was invited to the Lambs Club in Manhattan to do a presentation and slideshow of my book. And a woman came up to me to the podium before I was to speak, and she said, uh, Mr. Sabini, I just want to tell you um, – I came here just to meet you. And I said, well, why? And she said, well, it was either come to see you or see a screening of Buster Keaton in Steamboat Bill Jr. with live musical accompaniment. And I said, you gave up Buster Keaton to come see me? She <laughs> said, well, yeah, because, you know, you know, uh, Mr. Savini, you met my two brothers at Cinecon. And so that, that was really an honor. It was, it was Mary Owen, Donna Reed's daughter. And uh, my wife and I have had her over our house, and we've shown, you know, I've, I, I have a large 16-millimeter film collection. I have over a 1,000 titles in, in my collection. And she came over, and I showed her a few of her mom's films. And still later, uh, this was only a year ago, I was invited. Um, the Library of Congress was having a, a weekend of movies made about Pearl Harbor. And they invited me down to introduce They Were Expendable one day. And that was probably the biggest honor of my life. There were a lot of war veterans from the Vietnam, Korean War, and World War II present. So that was really something. And uh, it's, it's, you can see it, by the way. It was filmed. You could see it on YouTube. You just punch in my name, Lou Sabini, and you'll see it, <laughs> my presentation. By the way, anybody out there, if you haven't seen They Were Expendable, I strongly recommend you look at uh, Turner Classic Movies and see when it's going to be on again. And I'm going to be buying the book to take a look at the pictures. The name of the book, Behind the Scenes of They Were Expendable, A Pictorial History. Lou Sabini, thank you very much for being on Connor's Corner. It was my pleasure, Mike, and I hope to be on again. We could talk. I understand you're a big movie fan, so so am I, as you could tell. <laughs> yeah, we have to talk again. We all know someone who's been touched by cancer. It's the second leading cause of death. And it took the life of my father, John Wayne. But even in his final days, he was thinking about helping others and publicly campaigning to raise awareness about cancer. His courage and grit inspired our family to do everything we could to fight the big C, as my dad called it. So we did something about it and founded the John Wayne Cancer Institute 35 years ago to advance life-saving research. Our discoveries are fundamentally changing the way cancer is treated around the world. Cures are within our reach, but we can't do it alone. I'm Patrick Wayne, and I'd be honored if you joined us in the fight against cancer. You can make a lasting legacy by helping to eradicate this deadly disease. Together, we can save lives. To learn more, visit jwcigiving.org. That's jwcigiving.org. How can I protect my family if something happens to me? What if I need to go to a nursing home? What will happen to our savings, our home? What's the best way to give my home to my kids? Who will help us take care of Grandpa? These and many other questions can be answered with a phone call to Connors & Sullivan Attorneys at Law, PLLC, 718-238-6500. Mike Connors, one of New York Magazine's top lawyers, has over 30 years of estate planning and elder law experience. Mike and his team of professionals will help you protect your assets from probate, taxes, and nursing home costs so you can have peace of mind knowing you and your family will be taken care of and protected. I'm Mike Connors, founder of Connors & Sullivan. People don't plan to fail, they fail to plan. The time to plan is now. I'm Beth Connors. Call today for a free initial consultation with one of our experienced lawyers. Connors and Sullivan in Brooklyn, Queens, Manhattan, and Staten Island. Call 718-238-6500, 718-238-6500, or connorsandsullivan.com. Welcome back to Ask the Lawyer with Mike Connors. 
Welcome to the Connors Corner segment of Ask the Lawyer. One of our most popular guests last year was Claude Jorman Jr., who won an Academy Award back in the 40s as a child actor. And he's got a memoir out, My Life and the Final Days of Hollywood. Hello, Claude. Hey, how are you? I'm doing pretty good. <laughs> the Final Days of Hollywood, that sounds a little funny to me because, you know, Hollywood did last a few years after your career. Well, yes, it did. But I guess what I, what I write about primarily is that in 1950, uh, it all kind of came crashing down. Uh, when I was at MGM in those days, they used to say it was more stars than they are in heaven. And that was true. You had Clark Gable, Gene Kelly, Ava Gardner, you name it, Catherine Hepburn. And in 1950, it all came crushing down for two reasons. One, television appeared, and that just panicked the uh, the big studios. It panicked the guys in New York who had all the money, and they ended up getting getting fired. Uh, you know, L.B. Mayer and Jack Warner. They all lost their jobs. And at the same time, the uh, there was an antitrust suit that came out that the uh, companies like Lowe's had to get rid of the uh, studio system. They weren't able to, to just sort of guide their f- films that they made at MGM into the Lowe's theaters. And that also uh, kind of really put a, you know, really put a blitz into the whole thing. So it all happened at once. And then on, it never, never was the same. A lot of people in the audience, I, I think Everybody who knows anything about film saw your first performance, but it's the yearling where you ha- you won a Special Academy Award and you starred with Gregory Peck and Jane Wyman. How did that role Correct. come about? Well, it's really it's, I write about it in the book because I basically was picked out of a schoolroom in Nashville uh, by Clarence Brown, who was the director, who was going around the South looking for someone who fit what he was looking for, the part of Jody, which was a 10-year-old blonde-haired boy. And I sort of fit the mold, and uh, uh, it was basically initially on looks because he he was a very talented guy. Clarence Brown was the number one director at MGM in those days, and he just directed National Velvet, uh, one of Elizabeth Taylor's, you know, breakout films. And uh, so he took me under his wing. It took literally, Mike, it it took almost two years to make that movie. I was 10 when I started, and I was 12 when it came out. So I learned on the job. But I was picked out of the schoolroom, literally, and taken to Hollywood. How many children did they interview for the role? Well, they said 12,000, but that's <laughs> I have a hard time believing that. But what they'd initially done, they'd, they'd sent out talent scouts to all the major cities in the South, and they'd gone in and run ads and saying, if you, you, you know, if your kid is 10 years old, whatever, come to the hotel. Well, they they got kids who were 18. They got kids who were four. And Clarence said, that's not going to work. So what he did, he devised a new system where when he would go into a city like Nashville, where, where I was growing up, and he would go to the Board of Education, identify himself, and say, I would like a letter that I can take to the principals of the schools, the elementary schools in Nashville, show them the letter. I'd like to be able to look around their fifth and sixth grade classrooms. And if I see anyone I like, I'd like to be able to talk to them. If I don't, no one ever knew that I was here. And that's the plan that he made. And he saw me in a, in a classroom on Valentine's Day in 1945. So that's how it started. Now, you're cast with Gregory Peck and Jane Wyman, who were probably more famous after the film than before. Absolutely. They were both very young. Jane had just made uh, kind of a breakout film for her last weekend with, with Ray Milland, because she'd always been kind of a dancing girl or whatever and never taken seriously and uh, was married to Ronald Reagan at that time, actually. And uh, Gregory Peck had just made... Uh, uh, what the, he'd made Keys of the Kingdom, where he was, that was kind of his first film. And then, of course, he went on, his career launched, and he took off. But he was, you know, he was wonderful to work with. He was just as, you know, young guy, uh, learning, uh, just very patient, dealing with someone like myself and dealing with animals, which is wild animals, which is very hard because you can never teach an animal. You just have to wait till they do what you want them to do. And uh, he he was very uh, great to work with, and so was she. Was that 
shot on location? I assume it was. It was shot in Silver Springs, Florida, which is down next to Ocala. And that's where most of the uh, most of the film was shot. Was it difficult shooting on location, especially it's your first show? It was very difficult. Uh, we went down there in April, and it, and it was uh, it got very 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 hot. And then the rains came, and we actually got rained out in August, and had to come back to uh, to do the interior scenes at MGM, and then had to go back to Florida again in January. So it, it was uh, it was very difficult shooting on location. It was the hardest film I've I made. Eleven movies, nothing compared to that as far as difficulty and you know getting getting it done. Obviously, the film was a tearjerker. When you see it now, how does how do you react to it? You know, it's still emotional. It's a very emotional thing. I'm very tied to animals, and uh, in fact, we just lost our little pet dog after 15 years. So I'm sorry. It's, it, it's very, uh, it's it's a, it's a tearjerker. It really is. I, I didn't want my kids to see it until they were, you know, twelve years old or so, because it's just, you know, five or six, seven, eight year old kids see that and see the deer get killed and everything. It's just very tragic. Of course, after that, you did a, a very interesting movie that has uh, kind of like To Kill a Mockingbird, but didn't quite get the recognition To Kill a Mockingbird got. Uh, you're talking about Intruder in the Dust. Yes. Which was a uh, based on a book by William Faulkner, and it dealt with a lynching in Mississippi. Uh, we filmed it totally in Oxford, Mississippi, where Faulkner was present, was on the set a lot. And it, it's interesting because it was a film that five years later could not have been made because uh, they had riots at the University of Mississippi three or four years later, and a couple of people got killed when they admitted. Uh, James Meredith into the into the law school at Ole Miss. So it and unfortunately uh, MGM did not want to make the movie. Clarence Brown insisted on it, and he had enough power at the studio where they had to let him make it. But then they buried it. They just said, you know, we're we're showing things like till the clouds roll by and singing in the rain. We're not interested in doing something that deals with uh, race relations and. It died and only became revived, say, in the 80s when Pauline Kael and some of the other writers came out with it. And uh, now it's, it's it's on the circuit, the you know, with the uh, film noir uh, series that they have going around the country. And it's it's really I think it's probably my favorite film. Well, it's probably one of your more serious films. That's that's certainly true. The film that, let's say, my friends and I probably remember you the most for is John Ford's, John Ford's Rio Grande. How'd you right. get that part? Uh, I was uh, actually, I'd already moved back to Nashville, and I got a call from uh, John Ford's office saying he wanted to see me. And uh, uh, he, he, uh, I, I flew out to California. He, he looked at me and he said, uh, how are you, Marks? And I said, they're fine. He said, can you ride a horse? I said, yes. I mentioned that I'd made several westerns. And he said, that's it. You know, you, we want you back here in, in July uh, to play John Wayne, Marino Harris' son. <clears throat> and at that point, when I came back, uh, when he knew I could ride, he said, have you ever done any Roman riding? I said, what is that? <laughs> he said, that's standing on two horses. And I said, no, but I'll try. And, of course, I I did that. And so I was a favorite of his for the rest of the film because I was able to do that. I was 15 years old, and we made it in Moab, Utah, and it was just a wonderful, wonderful experience. And Harry Carey Jr., uh, uh, Ben Johnson, and Victor McLaughlin, you know, all the people that in most of his films so it was it was a great experience and you know any john ford film people are going to be looking at it 100 years from now so that's a little bit of immortality right there that's true it was, he was he was a real character <laughs> can you give us an example what did he do one time that you one story you can share with the audience well he, he always he, he was famous for having two things one he would always pick out a favorite somebody he really enjoyed really liked and he would sort of kowtow to them and, you know, be very, very nice. And then he always pick out somebody that he would harass. And the crew knew about it. And uh, 
uh, in this film, it was Ben Johnson. He used to say, Ben, you know, you stupid, get off, can't you stay your lines? He just stayed on him the whole time. And supposedly, uh, as I read into it, uh, he, he did that with John Wayne a lot. And Wayne, you know, who, when he became very successful actor he is one of the most highly paid actors in the business he would take less money to work with ford because he knew that you know it was going to be a very good uh, project and a very good film but he just had had to take this harassment and i guess henry fonda had had enough and he he refused to work with him anymore so he was just he was a strange guy but uh you know he's brilliant you know i think i made over 100 movies had what five Academy Awards? I mean, it was just a—you uh, you had to pay for it, but <laughs> but it was worth it. All right, so that piece of history is there. Now you made a couple of fun westerns, you know, Joel McRae, Randolph Scott. Yeah, I did. I made uh, the Randolph Scott one was was I was I think I was seventeen. It was the first time I was able to go out there without my father and you know sort of be on my own. And I started hanging out with Lee Marvin because that was kind of his first film. And he was a real character. I, I just loved him. And uh, he was, in fact, I shot him in the movie, which is <laughs> kind of funny. But uh, I liked Lee Marvin, you know, Randolph Scott, Donna Reed. And it's one of those movies in 19, I think it's 52 or something, that uh, we made it in 18 days. So it was, you know, they were shooting them fast. But I did that. Uh, I had a good role in that in that film. Uh, Outriders, that was one of those films when you were at MGM, if you were a contract, you were always working. You just made it. You made movies that they're paying you. You're going to be in something. And I got credit for being in a movie, and I don't think I did anything except I ended up drowning in the movie. <laughs> and, you know, it was crazy. I don't even know why I was in it, but... That's why in those days when you saw Clark Gable, you'd see him doing singing and dance movies because they were paying him. So we're paying you. You go to work. So uh, anyway, that was the Outriders. But uh, I would say the movies that I'm most proud of, obviously, The Yearling, uh, Rio Grande, and Intruder in the Dust. The other films, uh, the one movie I made, uh, uh, I think my third movie was The Sun Comes Up, which was another Marjorie Rollins story. And it was with Lassie and Jeanette McDonald. And it was really not a very good movie. In fact, I think Time Magazine said even Lassie was bad. So it was... Uh, <laughs> that's pretty <laughs> bad. Yeah, that's, that's hitting pretty low, I think. <laughs> but anyway, the, those were things I made. Uh, during that five-year period, I made made six movies. So, uh, you know, I worked quite a bit. Why did you stop working in Hollywood? Well, I, I think a lot of it happened, uh, you know, after the, after the studio system collapsed, it, it just, it was a free-for-all. And, uh, you know, I was 16, 17, 18 years old. There just weren't a lot of movies around. TV was beginning to take off, but I really uh, kind of missed the boat on that. And I'd gone back to Nashville and, and gone to high school. Then I ended up going to Vanderbilt and graduating, and I just moved on with my life. So uh, you did a little bit of TV, didn't you? Yeah, I did a couple of things. But I, the only thing I did, which I thought really had a pretty good role, was I don't know whether you remember the series Centennial, which was the Mitchell thing. And I was in one of those episodes and uh, enjoyed that. But I don't know. You know, I got married. I had kids. And then I was uh, at that time running the San Francisco International Film Festival and just had a lot of things going on. When your acting career is over, what are you doing? Right now, I'm kind of enjoying life because it took me two years to finish this book. And I'm doing some, you know, book signings and doing things like that, working with it. Uh live out in Marin County, north of San Francisco. I have... Uh, Seven kids scattered all around the country, and I spent a lot of time keeping up with them. And uh, my wife is uh, selling real estate. She's enjoying it. And I don't know, we're just kind of enjoying life right now. What do you want the reader to take away from your book? Well, that's a good question. Uh, I just think it's, it's, it's more than about me. I think it's more about what was going on during those periods. I tried to not focus necessarily on my life as a 
personality, but as someone who is witnessing what's going on. And it, it was uh, it was a changing world, and it was it was fascinating, and and I was amazed that I was able to recall a lot of the things that were going on. I also wanted to uh, have something that my family could they didn't know that much about me, so now they've learned a lot about me, you know, between all my kids and grandkids, and you know, so it's 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 been gratifying, and uh, I think. It's got good reviews, and you know it's on Amazon, and and I'm kind of proud that I that I've got it done. Name of the book: Claude Jarman, My Life and the Final Days of Hollywood. Thank you for That's being right. Thank you for being on Connor's Corner. Maybe when your next book comes out, we'll have you on again. Well, I, I certainly appreciate you guys, and you know I enjoyed talking with you what, about a year or so ago, and and uh, love to keep in touch. Okay, we always love, you know, we always love watching in those old films because there weren't that many, but they were quality. You're, you're right. All right, thanks very much. Thank you, Claude. Okay, well, you know, I, I Trooper York, I always loved his performance, Beth. I know you did too. Oh, absolutely. And he's only 15 back then, which is hard to believe. It's amazing. I mean, he, the talent of that kid, he's just a... I mean, can you imagine somebody saying you're 15 years old? Hey, can you put one foot on one horse and one foot on another horse and ride it and then go out there and jump over those hurdles? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, good guy. And you know who who his friend is? Patrick Wayne. Yeah, yeah. I mentioned that Patrick at the end of the interview. We... uh, you know, Claude also mentioned he was going to go see Patrick Wayne sometime in the near future. Just good But people. if you're at home and you're listening to the Saturday Night Broadcast, Rio Grande is on at 8 o'clock on the Western Channel. So if you haven't seen it before, you know, don't miss it. I no, mean, it's a good movie. A good movie. A good family movie. And, you know, talk, talk, talking about Luz Sabatini, the, that book, you, you know, you're going, I saw you were going through that book right now. And... You know, it, the the pictures are remarkable. They're wonderful because it is, it's the people as they are. Sometimes they're serious. You can tell they're thinking about what's what the scene's going to be. And other times they're just it, it, clowning around. What I was looking at, the one guy takes his shirt off all the time because um, Mr. Ford did not want, if you were an officer, he didn't want your your shirt to be sweaty. So the guy, he, he's taking off his um, shirt so his shirt doesn't get sweaty. And um, and you're seeing the people, you know, when you watch it on, okay, yeah, they look like they're tired and everything. But I'm telling you what, those pictures, they really, they are sweaty. They are tired. They're tuckered out. So it's it's as it really was. Yeah, and again, if you haven't seen They Were Expendable, try to track oh, that's that down. A, you talk about a tearjerker because it was real. And, of course, Robert Montgomery and John Ford were in the Navy when they did that. And, oh, guess what? Oh, no. David Kincaid, it's time, time to, to go, go home. Bye-bye. The way. We, are gathered, we are gathered here on hallowed ground. The voices raised, heads bowed down. We're gathered here on hallowed ground to sing this soul away. Star General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.